right, grab your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 8. We've got two more sermons before we take a, a pause in Mark and move on to another series. And so I'm going to preach today, Mark 8, we'll finish it out next week. And then uh, come September, we'll start something something new. We're going to be uh, looking at the first 21 verses, a lot of verses, so let's read them all together. And, uh, and then we'll get going to see what Mark has for us this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are some down the center column of seats underneath that seat there, so grab it. It's going to be on, I forget the page number, maybe in the 500s. Mark 8, uh, one through 21. Let's read together. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed people in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set them before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and had only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gathering of your church. Thank you for the opportunity for us to to sit under your word. There really are two postures that we can have as we come to Bible study or personal reading or a a gathering of your church is that we can impose ourselves on the word and uh, assume that we can tell it what to say or we can sit under it. And so, Lord, for these people who are sitting with me today, uh, we, we confidently say, Lord, help us. Help us to sit under your word, under its authority, and, uh, and Lord, teach us what you want us to, to learn from it. Make us people who have ears and do hear, who have eyes and are able 
to see. And I pray that you would help us to remember. And I pray that in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Um, you might remember this. Malcolm Gladwell made this term, that the tipping point, he, I mean, he didn't come up with the term, obviously. It's been in the, in the American vernacular, vernacular, English vernacular, because uh, he's a Canadian, uh, for a long time. But he, he brought that term back into popularity with his uh, number one best-selling book from, from 2000. It was his very first book uh, under that same name, Tipping Point. And uh, this definition isn't uh, specifically from Malcolm's book, but it's very close in regards to what a tipping point simply is. It's a point at which a series of small changes or incidents become significant enough to cause a larger or more important change. Now, start with this idea of tipping point because that's where we are in the Gospel of Mark. We're at the midway point, but more than um, the, the more important point of being at the midway point of this 16-chapter book is that we're at this very significant moment. The, the Bible scholars wouldn't call it a tipping point like Gladwell does. They call it a turning point. We're going to see Jesus um, enter a new phase of ministry where he will literally turn his direction and start going down a different way. We are at the turning point in Mark's gospel. And what we've seen in the last seven chapters is really the gospel writer introducing us to Jesus and helping us to understand um, what he came to do. God in the flesh, come to you know, announce the kingdom of God. And really from the very beginning of Mark's gospel, he says it right up front. Chapter one, verse one, he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And from that point, Mark has been intent to talk to us about Jesus ministry and sort of unpack very slowly through uh, the action of the story, the action of the text, uh, what's going on in his life and those things that he did come to do. And so what does he show us? He, show us, he shows us Jesus getting commissioned, his baptism that starts his ministry. And then he shows uh, us in just like these simple glimpses of, of Jesus doing the things that he came to do. There's the pictures of him uh, healing people. Uh, he takes away people's diseases that they've been confronted with for, forever, for all their lives. He uh, exercises demons. He identifies with sinners. He rescues people from the storms of their lives. And really what he's doing is he's demonstrating what the kingdom of God looks like. More than just demonstrating it, though, he comes with this authoritative proclamation of what the kingdom of God is. And this is the mantra that Jesus comes and reiterates all throughout his ministry. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And so everything that we've seen Jesus do up to this point um, has been a both a proclamation and a demonstration of the gospel. Now, alongside of Jesus' actions and his words has been this growing tension of uh, opposition of the religious leaders. The religious leaders are looking in and, and seeing who Jesus is not quite understanding what he's doing and the power that he's, uh, the authority that he has to do it, and they don't like it. And so those two things are really all aligning to bring us to this point. And the point that we are at, the driving question that really has gotten us to this point uh, in Mark's gospel, uh, unveiled in the story really is, who is he? Who, who is this person? Who is Jesus and Mark has shown us various people and their encounters with Jesus and what that encounter with Jesus produces. For the most part, it, it produces a change. 
a healing of people drawing near to God. But of course, we have the other uh, uh, other aspect of that is that he repels some as well. He repels them by his words, but he repels them because they don't quite understand who he is or what he's doing. Now, interestingly, as we're reading this story, one of the things that we are intuitively aware of is that a lot of people just don't get it. They don't get who Jesus is. They're seeing all these things. They're hearing his words. They don't get it. Even the disciples from this point don't get it. And unfortunately, they don't have the privilege that we have of of reading the story 2,000 years later and knowing what's going to happen, knowing how it's going to unfold. They're just living it as it's happening. They're experiencing it firsthand. And but the, the, the reality is they really don't get it. I think the direction that the, the, the text has taken us this week is that the question that we should ask, you know, not reading ahead to actually what does happen is, man, are they ever going to get it? Are they ever going to understand quite like we understand who Jesus is and what he came to do? Um, I would just be honest with you. This is a sobering text. The more I get into it and sort of understand what Mark is, is, uh, is trying to tell us, the more sad and sorrowful it kind of feels. And so brace your heart. We're going to end on a very sad, sobering, kind of even a negative um, point in the text. And I'm going to cut it off right there, and I'm not going to resolve it. And, and here's why, because I think we need to feel the tension that's happening as the story unfolds. But more importantly, there's a very hopeful point next week, and we're going to end on that hopeful point of, of the disciples. I'm not even going to tell you. You know what's going to happen, but I'm not even going to say it so that you'll come back and that, you'll, I mean, that you will have hope, not just for the disciples who've lived through this, but hope for yourself. Amen. I wasn't ready for that, Brandy, but thank you. <laughs> Sometimes, you, I mean, I love it when people talk back, but every once in a while, somebody talks back, oh, I wasn't ready for that one. Like, what do I do with that? All right, so we're going to end on a negative point. Turning points. All right, turning points aren't, I mean, you're familiar with turning points. There are decisions that we make. There are events that happen in our lives where our, our lives, our families, our jobs, our, the, our situations just get upended, and we are forced or by our own decisions, our own making, uh, we head into a different direction in our lives or for that particular event. Um, the thing with turning points is you don't know that you're in one until look, sometimes after the fact, after the fact, you get through uh, an event, a decision, and you look back and say, wow, that was really important right there. I've had quite a number of those in my life. Uh, I'll give, me a, give you a funny one. So most of you have read my bio. I went to West Point. Uh, Let's go back a couple years. I actually grew up, you know, in Durham, North Carolina, uh, lower income family. Uh, I started playing tennis when I was in the third grade. And, and if, if, you had a, if I had to say a sport that I'm kind of sort of good at, it would be tennis. And so uh, I was invited uh, to play, to, to join this like little rec league. Uh, there was a, a coach that was trying to, to find some African-American young men and raise them up to like eventually be a, you know, an Arthur Ashe, uh, a male Venus and Serena. And so they started with like 50 to 100 kids. And I mean, who knew? I, I was one of the, the 10 to 12 guys that were chosen uh, that this coach was going to coach. And I had, a, I had like a personal tennis coach from third grade up until high school. And we played competitively. I, I was a uh, I was a, I mean, I, I traveled the North Carolina circuit playing tennis. All right, fast forward, I graduate from high school, 
go to West Point. I did. I mean, I did, had no intent of playing um, tennis in at, at West Point, but they had you know that tryouts, and so I went and I tried out. I actually made the team. All right, Patriot League Division One. I wasn't a starting tennis player, but you know I can say on my resume I don't because it's, it's stupid. Um, <laughs> That I was, a, you know, I was a Division One college athlete. Uh, so I played for two yeah. years. Yeah. Woo! Yeah. So I played for two years, and then I had a turning point. So my technical officer, who is my overseer at West Point, you know, sort of making us go down the lane to, to get to graduation, he pulls me into his office one day and says, "Jeff, all right. So we need to make a decision. You need to make a decision. You need to make a decision of whether you want to." eventually try to graduate from West Point, or if you want to continue to play tennis. And so the underlying story behind that is my grades were sucking. Like, I went to West Point, and I had a lot of discipline. The military stuff was easy. The, the physical stuff was easy. I mean, I was strapped. But the academics were hard, and I was struggling, capital S. Like, I was like way down there. And it took me a couple years to, 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 to pull out of that. And my tech was trying to save me. He was throwing me a rope, like, look, dude, make the right decision. And so, uh, I, I, honestly, I'm stupid enough. I would have kept playing tennis. But I had, of course, a, a, a mentor that was a colonel. And he said, Jeff, do what your tax says. And so I stopped playing tennis. I became a regular cadet. I mean, it's, it's, there's some cool things that come with being a, 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 an athlete at West Point as a plebe, as a freshman. You don't have to sit down and square your, square your, your back and eat those dime-sized uh, meals and all that stuff. I was just chilling out at the core squad table. All that was stripped away, and I became a regular old cadet marching up the, down a parade field, and you know, no glam and glory. But guess what? Jeff graduated from West Point. That was a turning point. I look back and saying, "Wow, my life would be different if I had not made that right decision." Here's a more serious one. Uh, my brother has schizophrenia. My brother Greg is two years older than me, and I was 14 years old, and I walked into our kitchen, and that was. There was this scene happening of my brother attempting suicide. And I went back and called my mom, and that was the beginning of my family recognizing this, I mean, this long um, road of my brother dealing with schizophrenia. Um, and he still deals with it to this day. It's a turning point for our family in dealing with a, you know, a family member with a mental illness. All right, turning points. You've all had them. Uh, and we are at one in, the, in this chapter. And the way Mark writes chapter 8, it's almost obvious that he wants us to know that we're at the turning point of this story of Jesus. He wants us to read with an awareness that the story is going to turn a corner. Word is spreading about Jesus inside, outside of Israel, uh, but at the same time, opposition to him is growing. And so we're going to come into this turning point and see what happens. So let's jump into our text. Verse 1, In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. And so Jesus is still in, Ga in Gentile territory. He's on the east side of Galilee. Remember, that's where the Gentiles live, the area of the Decapolis. He had just healed a man uh, that had no hearing and could not speak in that area. And he and his disciples are still there. And as we, I mean, you only have to read a couple of verses here to say to yourself, you know what, this reminds me of a story. I mean, didn't we just read this story a couple of incidences back? And uh, obviously, uh, Mark is warning you to, to notice that. Uh, you should be immediately reminded of kind of a similar story told 
in Mark chapter 6. In this case, there were 5,000 people, and that's minus the women and children. So really, scholars say there's probably 15 to, to 20,000 people in the incident in Mark chapter 6. Uh, like Mark 6, it's a desolate place. Jesus, like the good shepherd, comes and he sees all these people following him, hungry for his words and hungry for him to, to heal them, perhaps. And what happens? He has compassion. And really what Mark is doing is he's connecting what's happening in this moment with the promise of God in the Old Testament. What did the, what did the prophets say? There would be one that would come, that God would draw near to his people and that he would come with kindness, and he would come with compassion and be a shepherd over them. And so I think that's what Mark is wanting us to see, that God is coming near. He comes with compassion. And why did Jesus have compassion? Well, because they had been out in the, out in the middle of nowhere for three days. And so he has compassion. Verse 3, and if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And the disciples, verse 4, answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? I think the disciples get it. They understand what's happening. Um, I mean, they're just looking at it in a very natural sense. They're saying, how in the world are we going to feed this many people? There's no way that we could produce this amount of bread to feed all these people. And Jesus obviously gives them a response. He says in verse 5, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks. Let's pause right there. Give thanks. I mean, y'all looking at the text, right? That's a Greek word that, uh, that means uh, Eucharist. That's where it's Eucharisteo. That's where we get the, the, the word Eucharist from. Uh, Another word that we use to symbolize the Lord's Supper or communion. I think this is interesting that Jesus is demonstrating things that he will implement in, in future days. In this case, uh, he hasn't given them the Lord's Supper. They don't know to give thanks for their food. They don't, I mean, they don't know that the Passover is coming and he's going to portray you know, Egypt being, uh, Israel being saved from Egypt through, uh, through the Passover meal and uh, recollect that to uh, a, a glimpse, a picture of him dying in their place for their sins on the cross. But he's giving them signs and symbols of the things to come even before they know it. And that's what's happening right there. And so he gives thanks. He broke them, broke the bread, gave them to the disciples and set them before the people. And they set them before the crowd, verse 7. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said to these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took them up, the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. In verse 9, there were there about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. I think from earliest times of the church, uh, Bible scholars, uh, people that help us understand what the, the, the Bible is all about, Christians have seen this story of Jesus feeding the 4,000 here, the 6,000 in Mark chapter 6, and then where those stories outline themselves in the other Gospels as, as these neat parallels. And uh, I'm going to show you a chart here that shows you some of the parallels. And here's the picture. It's, it's not just Jesus performing a miracle. That, that's the, the highlight here. Really, we're supposed to, supposed to be focused on who is actually receiving this benefit of this miracle. Who, who are the recipients 
of, of, of the bread and the fish. More importantly, who ethnically are Jesus, is Jesus serving? In the case of Mark 6, he is satisfying uh, the, the Jewish people. In the case of Mark 8, these are Gentiles. And so just as he satisfies the Jews in Mark 6, he's now satisfying the Gentiles. And so we see this beautiful picture of, of Jesus, of the, of the Bible really, telling us that, that Jesus is enough. Remember that, that, uh, the, the scene from the Syrophoenician woman, she coming to Jesus, a, a Gentile woman, and the perspective that Jesus tells her, all right, you're, I mean, you're not a child of Israel. You, you're a, a dog, so to speak. And she comes back and says, Lord, I'm not trying to be a child of Israel. I don't want to take their food, but I'm willing to take, take the crumbs. And then he sees her faith and gives her what she cries for, for her daughter to be healed. The same thing is, is sort of happening here. He's reiterating the same thing, that Jesus is enough, enough to satisfy the, the, the very needs of of the Jewish people, the, the, the chosen people of God, but he's extending that to, to all the people. Jesus is enough. He's a shepherd for, for all of us, for all of those who have put their faith and trust in him from all nations. And so this picture, I mean, we've already seen it, and he's simply reiterating it. Uh, and of course, the main difference that he's uh, pointing out here is He's opening up a lane of faith to people who are non-Jews. Now, we're 2,000 years removed from this. And so we're sitting here, and probably that's just, all right, so let's move on to the next point. This is a significant point. Why? Because had Jesus not introduced this idea right here, gone to the cross, died on a place for our sins, and then given his disciples the mission to, um, to go into Jerusalem and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world and to extend the good news of himself to all people, not just to Jews, we, we might be in this room, but we might not be worshiping the God that we're worshiping. So this is a significant point. Jesus is extending, he's opening up a lane of faith to people like us. And then verse 10, he leaves. He leaves that region. And he heads back over into the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee, back in the Jewish territory. And then look what happens in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began arguing with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. As soon as Jesus comes back in the Jewish territory, there they are hounding him. And it looks like they want a sign. They want Jesus to give them a sign, uh, which is interesting because it, uh, from, the, um, from what we have seen from Mark's text from, from his writing, from his story, it seems like all that Jesus has been giving the religious people and everybody following him so far is a sign. He's been doing nothing but wonders and miracles, and they're coming to him saying, all right, so Jesus, give me one more sign. But I think the thing to consider is, at least in terms of what they're thinking, a sign is not necessarily the same thing as a miracle. They had seen enough of Jesus' miracles. What they wanted was a sign. They wanted some proof that his miracles were actually coming from God himself. They wanted to know what authority he was doing all these wonderful things in. I think back to um, Moses and Pharaoh uh, as God is freeing Israel out of Egypt. Remember God gave Moses a staff. Well, Moses had that staff as a shepherd. God had Moses use that staff to uh, performed some crazy miracles, right? And then what did Pharaoh do? Pharaoh turned to his magicians and said, hey, duplicate that. And over 50% of the time, they could. 
And so the religious leaders are thinking through that. You know what? Everybody can't do a miracle, but our miracles can happen through both good and, 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 and evil means. And so Jesus, prove yourself. Prove that you are authentic. Prove that, this, that what you're doing is actually from the power and the finger of God and not some other power. In other words, I mean, they were skeptical, right? But here's the thing. You and I are skeptics, too, aren't we? Yes, you are. You're scrutinizing. We scrutinize a lot of things when it comes to ourselves, when it comes to our money, when it comes to our kids, when it comes to our food. Uh, you go to the mall. Think about that. You go to the mall. What do you want to buy? You want to buy an authentic Michael Kors bag. You don't want fake MW. You want to like be, I mean, you want to be sporting that stuff on your shoulder and you want it to look good. The reason why I say MK, I got it on right. I, I, I shouldn't turn around and show you my bottom, but I, I think I got on Michael Kors pants. And I didn't even know what I was buying when I bought them, but I've got on Michael Kors, Michael Kors <laughs> pants, and I know I look good, right? So we want to go to the mall and we want to buy authentic Ralph Lauren polo shirts. We don't want the fake knockoff with the, right, with the polo guy falling. You know, there's a fake version, right? And the guy is falling off the horse like, like he's like getting ready to fall. Um, we also don't want fake Rolex. True story. So I'm in Iraq uh, in 2005 and my sergeant major is, uh, I mean, he's industrious, and he, you know, just in foreign countries, you can get, you can get all kind of, like, not real stuff. And so, I mean, we had, we had movies that y'all were seeing in the States two weeks before. I mean, we saw them two weeks before y'all saw them back here. I can't remember what movie uh, had come out, but I was telling my wife, we were talking, I was like, yeah, I'm going to see this movie. She's like, how are you going to see that? They hadn't even come out here yet. I said, hmm, I don't know, but we're going to see it. And like in the middle of the movie, somebody stands up and is walking around like, you're blocking the view. I can't even see it. And so in this case, my sergeant major, Dave Jenkins, I love him. Um, so Dave was industrious, and he got to know some Iraqis. And the Iraqis were like, they were, you know, they were out to make a buck. And, uh, and one day he shows up with a Rolex on his, on his, on his wrist, and uh, it looked good. And, uh, you know, I'm not one for, for you know, for fashion and fair but uh, somehow he caught wins like, man, I'm checking out your Rolex, and that would look good on my wrist. And he got me a Rolex. So I got a Rolex. Um, I've only worn it one time. So I wore it. Uh, I went back to, of course, North Carolina. I think I went to church one day. I had my Rolex on, and lo and behold, somebody recognized that I had a Rolex on. And they said, Jeff, you got a Rolex. Let me see that. And of course, it wasn't real. I was embarrassed that Jeff was like authentic Jeff, the man of character, was wearing a fake Rolex. So I'm walking around like I'm perpetrating, and that's the last time I wore it. I, I got to confess, I didn't tell the guy it was fake. I was like, <laughs> so all right, we want authentic stuff, right? Okay, we want, to, we want ways to know that the stuff is authentic. And this, I think this is what it, 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 the religious leaders are after. Uh, they want to know that Jesus is authentic. And then look at Jesus' response in, in verse 12. Uh, he says, and he sighed deeply, and in his spirit he said, um, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Uh, these, these words stick out to me because they stuck out last week. He sighed deeply. Um, this particular word is different than him sighing in the case of the, the man whose ears were, he couldn't hear. 
uh, when Jesus was going to unplug his ears, he sighed because of the brokenness of this world. Jesus is thinking about creating this world in all of its glory and then the, the effect of sin affecting this man such that he can't hear or speak. And he sighed because he saw the, the manifestation of sinfulness producing this. In this case, it's, something, it's, it's similar, but it's something else. He's sighing, but it's more of a, a dismay. He's, he has a posture of, of despair. It's, it's the feeling that the, the limits of his faithfulness, not to God, but to uh, mankind, is being tested. And if you can think that Jesus would be tested like that, he is in this moment. It's as if he's saying right here, you know, I, I've got nothing left to respond to you. And that's a sad position for Jesus to be in. But if you're on the receiving end of that, it's even sadder. And, and, and I think of those of you in the room, especially those of you who have professional lives that have, I mean, that come across clients and people for which you might um, feel this way sometimes as you're trying to help and to, to better our society. I think of teachers and, you know, the teachers, I mean, the, the, your work is never done as you go in day in, day out whether you're a homeschooler or someone in the public school system or the private school system, and you're working with kids, you're working with them in the school system, you're working with them out, and say, for example, you have a kid that's just not getting it, and you're like giving as much as you can, trying to use the tools that you have to help a child learn the concepts that are going to move him forward in life, and one day you come to the reality, this kid is just not going to get it. And I mean, you want to let out a sigh, right? I mean, I think that's what's happening with Jesus, I think of uh, counselors. Counselors meet with a client, and sometimes a counselor will come to uh, perhaps a hard issue, a a, a hard hearted person, and they come to the um, the reality, the the realization that whatever the presenting issue is, that person's hard heart or their unwillingness to to, to move forward is not going to help their presenting issue get resolved, and it's, it almost makes you want to sigh in despair. Uh, but parents, we get this way sometimes too, right? Because we see our kids, we see them growing, we hopefully see their character and their maturation happening so that they would become productive citizens of our, of our country. And then what happens? Sometimes they have setbacks. They don't do the things that we want them to do, and we get a little despair, don't we? But before parents, you start judging your own kids, it's, it can be the other way around. I'm learning that from my own kids, my teenagers. Sometimes they can feel this kind of despair with us as they're having issues and situations, and they're coming to us and shaking their heads like, my parents don't get it. They're never going to understand. I think whatever the case, this is what Jesus is feeling. He's, he's sighing deeply over the, over the situation that he's in. I mean, he has met his limit. He has nothing left for these Pharisees. And in this moment, he is, he's been pushed as far as he can, and he's, he's going to be unwilling to inch towards them salvifically from this point on. Those are huge words. But that's what's happening in our text. And so he's sighing. He's sighing, firstly, because he re realizes they aren't moving towards him, and so he should stop moving towards them. But, but here's the other thing. He's sighing because he's realizing when they ask for a sign, they're being disingenuous. They, they really don't want a sign. 
They're just putting up one more obstacle in their heart that keeps them from receiving the reality of the kingdom of God that Jesus is preaching. They just don't want to hear what he has to say. They don't want that kind of kingdom of God. If this is what the kingdom of God really is, I don't want that. I don't want you, Jesus. And he's feeling that. And and, and so this is what he's going to do. He's going to turn and he's going to leave them. Maybe you can relate, not necessarily to to Jesus turning his back on you, but um, I mean, kind of the sense that these these Pharisees uh, keep asking God for a sign. Have you ever experienced this in your own life? Perhaps a confession of sorts that, that you, in your circumstance, really do want God to give you a sign. You're, you're asking God for things, even demanding things from God. You're, you're setting out fleeces for him. And sometimes we do that, you know, in, in jest. We don't, we don't, I mean, we're like, all right, God, so I'm, I'm, I'm playing a little bit. But actually, I mean, you might be serious. Like from your heart, you're saying, all right, Lord, so I really need a sign today. And, and here's the deal. If you don't give me a sign, if you don't give me some clarity, then I'm not going to follow you. I mean, we wouldn't say this out loud. But sometimes by our actions and on the inside, this is really what we're doing. We're saying, Lord, I'm not going to I'm not going to follow you unless you give me a sign. I'm not going to obey you unless you give me some clarity in the situation. I don't know if I'm going to be able to come to church. I don't know if I'm going to be willing to stand in front of people and lift my hands and even worship you anymore. All right, God, stop playing. I need a sign. And of course, we don't articulate those words, but sometimes that really is what we're doing when we are demanding from God to give us a sign. And so before we look down our noses at the Pharisees, here's what we got to do. We got to consider, you know what, sometimes we're just like them. We want a sign from from God. We want him to tell us the nitty gritty of what's going on. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's revealing himself loud and clear to these Pharisees, and yet they don't want more. And why do they want more? Because, I mean, our desires are insatiable. We're, we're, we're unfortunately sometimes never satisfied. There's parts of our soul that are always craving for more, even when God is giving us the best that he can. And what's the best that God can give us? He gives us himself. He gives us himself, and yet we say, Lord, all right, give me some more. So here's what happens, verse 12. It says, no sign will be given to this generation. And the literal words there are, if a sign be given, may I die. Back in the hood, back in North Carolina, this is how we say this, over my dead body. That's what Jesus is saying. Over my dead body, you Pharisees, will I give you a sign. And that's pretty strong language. But again, Here's why he's saying, I'm not going to give you a sign, because them asking for a sign was a sign. And here's the sign that they were giving him. They wanted a sign, but they're giving a sign. They're giving a sign. They don't get it. They don't get who Jesus is. They don't get why he's come. And Jesus here is lamenting. He's lamenting that the Pharisees don't get it after all that he's done before them, after all that he said. The ones that know the words of God the best get it the least. And he's sighing, and he's about to turn away from them. But he's also lamenting the generation. You see those words there? He says, 
No sign will be given to this generation. And what this touches on is what all the gospel writers pick up on. It's the fickleness of, of people like us. One day we love Jesus, and the next day, because he's not responding to us or telling us exactly what we want to hear, tickling our ears, making us happy by answering our prayers, then what do we do? We just cross our arms and say, I ain't worshiping today. I'm not going to open my Bible. I'm not going to go to church. I, I need, God, I need you to move before I, I do any of that stuff. I mean, we're like that. And unfortunately, we're, um, we are not alone. We take our cues from the sinfulness of the disciples who are following Jesus. One day he's all the buzz, and the next our faith in him wanes, even more so when we find out that following Jesus comes at a cost, that we are supposed to uh, take up that cross, deny ourselves, and follow him. And so they've become skeptics, not just the religious leaders, but all these onlookers who he, he calls the, the generation. And so Jesus is saying, I'm not going to give you a sign. If you, if you accept what you've seen and heard, then that's all the sign that you need from me. There's, no, there's not going to be any further demonstration of the kingdom of God. And at that point, verse 13, he leaves them. He gets in the boat and he goes to the other side. And so here's what this looks like. Jesus gets in the boat. He's got his disciples with them. They're rowing away. And guess what? All those religious leaders, they're on the shore looking and Jesus turns. And the sad thing is he's not going to go back. He's not going to go back to Galilee. He physically will change directions in his ministry. From here on out, he will set his sails uh, south. He's going to go to Jerusalem, many cities en route, and he's going to submit himself to, again, other religious leaders who are going to put him on a cross and eventually uh, kill him. And so what's happening in verse 13, these religious leaders have missed their opportunity. This is the turning moment in our text. And make no doubt about it, this is the saddest point, not the saddest point. The saddest point, obviously, is Jesus dying on the cross. But this is, next to that, one of the saddest, most sobering points in this gospel. This is where Jesus looks out, he turns the corner, and leaves them on the seashore. And against that, of course, you have the backdrop of Jesus dealing with his own disciples. And here they are in the boat, and we find out that Jesus is also concerned about their heart because where they should be asking Jesus, all right, so what's coming up next? What's going on in your ministry? They're fussing about bread. Look at verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat, and he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And this is one of those, I mean, obviously, this is one of those weird statements that, I mean, this, this is like, what is Jesus saying here? Uh, it sounds like a parable. He's actually um, using a metaphor, and it's about uh, leaven. I don't know anything about baking. Um, nothing. I like to eat. But leaven is a substance that you add it to dough. It's going to cause bread to rise. Am I right, bakers? Come on, y'all. Encourage my heart. All right. So, um, most of the time when we, when we read about leaven in the Bible, it's, giving, it's talking about it negatively. Leaven is, is representing negative attitudes uh, or actions of people like you and me. In this case, both. Um, N.T. Wright is an Anglican bishop. He's retired now, but 
He's uh, one of the most respected New Testament and Pauline scholars. And here's what he says about this text. He says, the Jews used to use leaven to make ordinary bread. But referring back to the Passover story in Exodus, there was a time when they were forbidden leaven because it reminded them that when they were leaving Egypt, they were in such a hurry to leave slavery that they only had time to make unleavened bread. He goes on to say, when Jesus speaks of leaven, he does it not to warn the disciples of potentially using the wrong type of bread, but to put them on guard against the wrong type of kingdom vision. When he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Herodians, he's saying, beware of the sort of kingdom vision they are propagating. And then he goes on to say that both the Pharisees and the, the Herodians, basically they are diluting the vision of the kingdom of God. The Pharisees just want this. They want a puppet kingdom. They want to have their strict rules and they want everybody else around them to obey it. They want their own kind of kingdom. The, the Herodians want a dynasty. They want, to, they want their family to be a monarchy, and they want to be uh, the perpetual true kings of Israel. And N.T. Wright, uh, in his wisdom, is saying, neither one of these visions comes close to the mark of the true kingdom of God. And if we submit ourselves to either one of these, then what's going to happen is they, go, they will... They will Keep, they will run us astray from the realities of, of God's kingdom. N.T. Wright goes on to say, Jesus' kingdom vision is very different from either one of these. That neither the leaven of the, scribe, of the scribes or Pharisees, the religious leaders or the Herodians are appropriate. And his extraordinary feedings of, are signs of what his kingdom vision is about. What's it about? It's about an assurance to the disciples that this is really happening. What's this? That what the prophets promised that God would come near in the person of a Messiah and that he would wrong all the rights of the world. That's what Jesus has come to do. They're, they're seeing it in front of them and they're missing it. And then he concludes with this. It's urgent that the disciples get this message because Jesus can see the signs of growing hostility. And so the thing to note after all that N.T. Wright says is unlike the Syrophoenician woman in chapter 7, I mean, and this is, should scare this is scaring Jesus. The disciples aren't getting it. That's what's happening. They're in the boat. They're rowing away. They see the religious people on the, on the, road, on the, on the shore, and they're discussing ad nauseum about bread. And Jesus is not even talking about bread. He's talking about them getting the reality of why he's there. And so he tells them to watch out, but they keep arguing about physical bread. Verse 16, I got to hurry. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And so this is their response. Um, it's obvious to us, reading 2,000 years later, that they aren't getting it. But here's the question for us. I mean, wh why is it they aren't understanding? But before you answer that question, back up. In what ways do you not understand? Why is it they don't see what Jesus is showing them and all the things he's doing? And then back up. Why is it that you don't sometimes see what Jesus is doing in your own life? It's the sin in our hearts. Verse 17, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? This is a rebuke. Jesus is actually giving prophetic utterances. He's actually using the language of the prophets of old. 
that they would use as they rebuke the generations of their day. And I think it's right to see that Jesus is worried. He's worried that, that the leaven, that the attitudes of the Pharisees and even the Herodians has leaked into his closest friends, these disciples, and it's already caused them to grow astray. And then he says, do not remember. Look at verse 18. And do your hearts not remember. That's not what it says. It says, do you not remember? So he, he's reached a tipping point, or as the Bible scholars would say, a turning point. Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Then he said to the 12, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he says, do you not yet understand? The end. I mean, this is where Mark has led us, really. And I don't know if you can discern how, how sad this point is, but really what's happening is we're watching this drama, and the reality is the disciples still yet don't, they don't understand. They don't get it. And, and our question for them at this point, dismissing the fact that we know how it's going to conclude, is will they ever understand? And I think the appropriate way for us really to apply this to our lives is to reflect on these questions. You see these questions? I think it's like seven to nine questions that Jesus asked. A couple of them are, are, are specific to the context, asking about bread and uh, the miracle that he's just done. But a more reflective posture for us would be to take these same questions. I'll show the questions, please and ask ourselves of them 2,000 years later in regards to our own relationship with the Lord. Where are you with the Lord in your own relationship? Do you have understanding? Do you perceive? Having eyes, do you actually see? And ears, do you actually hear what he's saying? Do you remember? Does your memory allow you to be in touch with the faithfulness of God and how he has helped you through the circumstances of your life? Or has your heart been heartened to who he is and what he has done? I think those are the appropriate reflective questions to ask ourselves from this text. Have our hearts grown cold or maybe even hardened because we're so near to the things of God, like these disciples were? Do you, do you notice that? They are the ones that are closest to him, but in many ways, they've become the most numb. And sometimes we can go through the emotions of our lives, even of our faith, and become so annulled to God and how he's moving in our life and just dismiss the things that are happening in front of us. And perhaps that's happening for you, too. Two other things I think are appropriate from our text today. Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians. And I mean, how do we apply that to our lives? I think it's the reality that the, the culture that we, li we live in, it has a leaven to it that there are attitudes and parts of our culture that if you buy into it, it would be more detrimental to you and the way you live your life than if you uh, simply just pay attention to what God is telling you to do and live as he has prescribed. The leaven of our culture blinds our vision to what God's kingdom is all about. And so Jesus says, even to us, 2,000 years later, he says, watch out. Because the vision of the kingdom is this, is that the person of, that God comes near in the person of Jesus. And he comes to restore everything that's lost in the fall. He comes to restore the will. I mean, he comes to, to really rescue us from the wilderness of our lives. I like how 
Um, Jesus says it in Luke's gospel. He says, the poor will no longer be poor. He says, those are who are held captive by unjust practices of various sorts and their own selfishness are going to find liberty. He says, the blind, the physically blind and those who are spiritually blind, those suffering from limiting diseases and spiritual ignorance of all kinds will finally be made whole. The downtrodden, those who are oppressed by people, relatives, friends, government, jobs, systems, the cruelly mocked teenager, the one who's bullied, the neglected child, those who feel unloved, they're, they're all going to be set free. And here's the best part. He says that all of us will know God's favor. But that comes as a condition because you only know God's favor if you put your faith in and trust Jesus. And he gives us that opportunity to do that because he hangs on the cross in our place for our sin. That's the vision of the kingdom of God. That's where Jesus is headed. That's what, he's, that's what his message of proclamation and demonstration has been so far. It's this beautiful message, the most wonderful message that we've ever heard. And so his, his ending words here to us and to them many years ago is simply beware. Why? Because we don't want to hold a message um, that's not the message of the kingdom and lose the very hope that God is trying to give us. Here's the last thing. Jesus is the sign that we're looking for. You know, a lot of times we demand, all right, God, I just need some clarity for my life. Um, here's a truth. God is giving us, given us all the signs that we need for life and godliness. What is it? It's Jesus in the flesh. Paul says it right. He says, Jesus has become poor, so that we in our poverty would become rich. And that's not so that we would have monetary affluence. It's that we would gain the richness of his kingdom, that we would be the benefactors of all that's good and favorable about God. That's the good news of his kingdom. And so he concludes by with this thought. The Pharisees and the generation of people following Jesus, they saw everything he did, and guess what? They rejected him. The disciples are watching, and they don't get it. And his question for us, Transit Church, what about you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I, I pray, God, that you would make us so that we have hearts that aren't hardened, but that we have hearts that are pliable. As we sang earlier, that we have hearts that are surrendered to you, to what you're doing in our lives. God, for those who are here today and those under the the, the hearing of my voice, God, would you give us eyes that actually do see, and would you give us ears that actually hear, and that you would cause us to remember, especially those of us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, cause us to remember his goodness. When life gets tough, when we have lost our way, more importantly, when, um, when we're doubting and we just need a sign, God, would you help us to remember that you're with us, that you are in the flesh, God incarnate, and that you, you've never left us. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen and amen.